I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Since 71 podcast. My name's Stuart, the founder of the website. And today I've got a little special episode where we're we're not talking about any kind of current or active football matches or football teams that have been playing. I'm joined by uh, Louise Kunzler. Did I pronounce that right, Louise? You did Kunzler. Yeah, pretty good. Start. Oh, pretty good. Excellent. It's not a bad start. Um, Louise is an author of a book titled uh, Our Beautiful Game and we'll uh, we'll, we'll go into that um, over the course of the episode and hopefully uh, you'll enjoy it and uh, go out and buy it and uh, read it yourself because it's a a really interesting and and fun book, one that I've been enjoying reading. Um, How are you doing, Lou? Yeah, I'm doing really, really well, Stuart. Thank you so much for inviting me on to Since 71. It's a a great honour to come here. It's such a well-named podcast. We know exactly what we're thinking about right from from the start, women's football and and 71 and and the changes. And and that's sort of at the heart of my book. So I'm absolutely delighted to kick off. (laughs) Ha ha. Hey, um, I'm delighted that you actually realise what the name actually means. Quite often we might have people that look at it and they think they're not too sure what it's about. So when someone actually gets it, it's, um, yeah, it's quite pleasing for us because uh, a lot of thought went into that. And um, yeah, we're, we're quite proud of the name, to be honest. Um, so just getting straight into it then, um, before we talk about you as a writer, I'm keen to explore your relationship with The Beautiful Game. Pardon the uh, book reference. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I... Um... I, I grew up in, 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 in the Southwest, so I've been a, a lifelong supporter of Exeter City, which is not always the easiest, uh, it's not always the easiest job in the world, but, um, you know, cause it's, it's a funny old thing down in the Southwest. There's not a massive amount of football, but, uh, I, I nearly said, I nearly presumed that you were a Plymouth fan, so I'm glad that I didn't do that. I couldn't possibly be a Plymouth fan. If I was a Plymouth fan, I, I wouldn't be allowed home. That's, 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 you know, uh, the uh, the one thing that you know as a Devonian, you have to choose. It has to be Exeter or Plymouth, and and, and I and I'm an Exeter girl through and through. So it's it's never the easiest ride, but um, it's it's and it's always fun supporting supporting your local team, whoever they are, isn't it? And um, my husband is actually he's he's Swiss, so we've had some fun recently with the Euros. Obviously, Switzerland doing so well at the last minute that was exciting, and then um and then obviously England, and um so. Yeah, football's very much part of this this house, definitely, because my hubby's always got always got the football on, and I have two girls who who grew up playing a little bit of um a little bit of football. Um, my uh, oldest in particular got really into into sports. She got more into into swimming, but I think that was one of the things that made me realise how important uh, kind of role models for girls in sport are. 
Um, so although she didn't continue with the football so much, it was seeing her in a squad as a girl, in a squad, a, a swimming squad going forward. And, and that really, when I was coming back to thinking about writing this book and thinking about girls' sport, I was really remembering her as, as a 9, 10, 11-year-old and just how important it is to feel to feel validated in whatever sport you're you're taking part in. It's yeah, you're right. It's absolutely huge. Um, regular listeners will know that I coach uh, an under 15s side at Haven't More to Louisville, and I've been absolutely blown away by the level of participation with girls football in Hampshire. Our age group has more teams in it than any boys league in Hampshire at any age group. Yeah, I think that's, that's that's fantastic, isn't it? And it's been an inc- an incredible thing, and and it's taken it's taken a while, um, you know, to 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 get to the point where girls feel feel uh, that football is for them. And I think that's been really important and something that's just been blown out of the water in the last decade. And it's so fabulous to see. And that and again, that's one of the reasons why I thought this book that really looks back at the at the roots of of, of of the game for for girls and young women was really it just seemed the perfect the perfect time regardless of sort of centenaries and things that I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment but but it just seems that women's football is just is just so exciting right now especially at grassroots level especially girls getting out there and playing and feeling no one can stop them doing it it really just feels that that's that that's the vibe at the minute isn't it Definitely. Inclusion, I'd say, is probably the big word. It's yeah. they, they feel included, it's uh, and respected, um, even though there are many instances where they're still not given the level of respect, but we could talk or about that for hours. Or, yes. <laughs> yeah, little exactly. things like well, female We're not going to talk about kits. that. Today's a positive day. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah, exactly. So you've been quite open with your dyslexia. So I, I wondered how it's affected you in your life, especially as an author, and um, and how you've overcame it to become yeah, an author. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a really, it, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? And I think... Um, I'm incredibly dyslexic. I was actually, as well, I was born um, left-handed, but changed to right-handed. Uh, this was in the in going to school in the 70s when that wasn't happening. I mean, that was happening in, in the sort of 40s and 50s, but by the 70s, I must have been the last, the last child in Britain to, to, to be changed around. So it means that everything's sort of in my brain and physically as well. I mean, I'm not a particularly sporting person myself. I kind of struggle with with that sort of hand-eye coordination all that sort of stuff and I definitely struggle with um you know getting words down on paper so it's perhaps odd that for someone so dyslexic that I wanted to be a writer but I think it's because stories are always spinning in my head and that's what I would say to anyone who is dyslexic or, or has dyslexic kids you know your imagination has got nothing to do with dyslexia. In fact, people who are dyslexic or, or who have other, um, you know, learning needs and differences often make great writers because we see the world in a slightly different way to other people. And so we're noticing that thing that someone else might not notice. And that's what people love to read about is a slightly different slant on the world. And I've always, you know, been telling telling stories out loud, you know, since I was a very, very little girl. I mean, I, I grew up on a on a windy sheep farm in, in on Dartmoor and there often weren't other kids around and I would talk to the sheep and tell them stories. And so verbalizing and then eventually learning to put that down on paper. But it's like it's like being into sport or whatever. You know, if you want to be better at football, you're gonna to have to practice every day, every week, you know. And it's not about playing big matches, is it? It's about putting in the skills, doing the drills. It's exactly the same for a writer. You know, write little bits down to try and capture little 
character scenes or or snippets of dialogue. You know, don't sit down and try and write a book on the first day in the same way as you're not going to play, you know, in Wembley the first time you put your boots on. You know, it's just building it up, making your your imagination muscle stronger because it is like a muscle and the more you use it, the stronger it gets. So, I think that's sort of what's what's driven me. But yeah, it's it's not easy being being dyslexic and and my trade being using using words and getting them on paper. But um, it's it makes it all the more exciting. I think it's more of a challenge. It's it, it's a way of a way of coming at it. I think definitely. We touched on something before we started recording about me personally. I found it easier to read books when when I had something visual to to link it to i gave the example of uh, great gatsby where i would have enjoyed the book originally but i would have enjoyed the story and I, I probably would have struggled to picture it and really immerse myself in the world but after seeing the baz Luhrmann film i could read it and picture leonardo dicaprio in the role and while a, a book purist might say well that's not that's a, a fantasized version of the story it's not how it was in the real times that that doesn't matter for me that doesn't detract from it and then we have um Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings, those type of books, I would struggle trying to read those prior to watching them on the TV show because there's so much description and so many different characters and so many unusual words and names that I, I would struggle with that having it on paper. So, yeah, I'm very much a, a visual person, so it's mm-hmm. something that does make it easier, easier for me um, especially. And um, something that you also touched on, uh, before we came on about the, the children's books that you write and about how important it is at a young age to fuel children's imagination through images and, and visuals. Yeah, I, I mean, I write across across the age for, for children. I write I write for the very youngest kids with um, picture books, as they're called, you know, the highly illustrated um, sort of things like the, the, the Gruffalo that you might be familiar with, Julia Donaldson, that sort of picture book, right through to books like Our Beautiful Game, which is what they call middle grade, which is for really eight to twelve year olds. But I would imagine um, our beautiful game would be really enjoyed by eight, uh, by by sort of nine, ten, eleven year old readers. That's who I was really imagining when I was writing it. And yeah, I think kids now are great at sort of um, using their visual imaginations and bring it back to the story because I think they've grown up with very beautiful, highly illustrated books, which help them as they move into storybooks that don't have pictures, and then they move away. But again, you know, I think it's I think it's practice. I think, you know, the more the more kids read, the better they get at building those own their own pictures in their imagination. But you know what we're going to have to do, Stuart, aren't we? We're just, we're just going to have to make sure that there's a film of our beautiful game so that, you know, um, hey, yeah, everyone, why not? Can, yeah, everyone yeah, can enjoy that alongside alongside the book. Um, yeah, definitely. Well, I would certainly be uh, supporting <laughs> and campaigning for it to be made because uh, I think it'd be I think it'd be great. I think it'd be uh, it'd certainly be enjoyable. Um, your website obviously describes you as a children's author. So and you, you touched on the you think that the book is suitable for sort of sort of would you say about sort of like 10 11 year olds yeah 9 9 right. 10 11 i'd say just on the cusp of leaving leaving primary school i always write for kind of primary school uh children more than secondary school children because again i just think it's 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 a golden age of children's reading and you know just or or just starting secondary school you know so that that 9 10 11 12 you know because then i think it's just a really rich time for kids imagination because they're imagining doing stuff on their own without their parents they imagine their own adventures but they're still very open 
and and the sort of pressures of of adolescence haven't you know necessarily sort of got in the yeah. way of that of that willingness to go on an adventure in their minds and to imagine anything and i think often if you think of books that that you know kids really have loved as 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 children whether it's the harry potter books or the narnia books or the philip pullman books or you know they're often that that golden age of sort of nine nine ten eleven and it's just a glorious age to write for and i love one of my favorite things a great perk of being a children's writer is that i get to go into schools and go to festivals and do visits with kids that age and honestly the questions they ask and the enthusiasm it it all it's always inspiring and i always always come back having learned far more from them than, than they've learned from me Definitely, I can imagine they've been on the spot. I'm sure it's a similar age probably to the age of the kids that you're coaching. You know, it's just full of anything is possible and and it's it's a great um, leaping off point, whether that's through imagination and reading or through sport, you know, to just um, to find joy in life and to explore that. And that will then ricochet through all other areas of your life. You know, if you're enjoying yourself on the football pitch, if you're reading a great book, hopefully doing both, you know, these are all things that will come back and make you a, a happier, healthier, stronger person to face the the pressures of modern life I think yeah definitely I always feel that everyone should have some sort of passion and interest and uh, be if if yeah if you can put in both of them then uh yeah it'll be uh fantastic um how did you feel when your first book went into print oh gosh yeah it was uh other other than other than than the birth of my kids and I better say my wedding day uh it was definitely it's a beautiful thing you know and it's it's um because it's a team thing as well writing a book and you write a book and it's quite a lonely thing you sit at a, in my case I sit at my laptop and I you know tap 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 away and, and you've no idea what you're doing and where it's going and then finally when that is validated and, and a publishing company get behind you and you work with an editor who makes it a much better story. And then you work with the designers who put a wonderful cover on it and you work with publicity who make sure that it gets out in the world. And it's an incredible thing and an incredible feeling that that, that sort of secret, private, slightly lonely thing that you did for ages. And again, I've been writing since I was, you know, since I could scribble stuff down with my appalling spelling and my backward letters and all the rest of it. But, you know, I've been writing my whole life and and I've only been published for, oh gosh, 10, 12 years, I suppose. And I'm I'm now in my 50s. So it was a great kind of, you know, middle-aged discovery to to have that happen and to go into into bookshops. and, and, And I'm freely admit I will go into bookshops and have a good stroke of my covers if I see them in there it's, you feel incredibly proud but again actually the highlight for me is, is then going into schools with, as a published author and talking to kids and seeing the excitement for them of meeting someone who has done something they may want to do kids who want to be writers themselves you know seeing I'm just an ordinary person I'm just you know I, I loved writing books and uh, you know, writing stories and making stuff up as a kid, being in shows, doing drama, that kind of stuff, you know, using my imagination. They can now see that as a result of that, here I am published. It's a great feeling. Absolutely wonderful. And I show off terribly every time a new book arrives and I drive my family mad running around the house going, look, look, it's my new book. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. You obviously touched on the team element of it. Um, obviously, our beautiful game um, isn't um, an illustrated book, but uh, obviously, a lot of your children's books are. So, as I, I've, I've, as we've said as well, and regular listeners know that I've got a, a little toddler myself, and you see the, the fantastic illustrations that are there. Yeah. I'm, I'm just kind of interested. 
what comes first between the chicken and egg? Is it a developing process? Yeah. Well, it, it depends. I, I can't draw a stick person. So for me, what will happen is I, um, for my picture books that, that are illustrated, for instance, I work very often uh, for Faber. I've, I've got uh, a series of picture books about a zebra called, the first one is called Not Yet Zebra. And the second one is called Calm Down Zebra. And they are illustrated by the wonderful Julia Wolf. So in that case, I will write the, the text and then she goes away and does the illustrations and, and then they, they come back together. And for me, that's the most gorgeous thing because just seeing how someone else has envisaged your characters is, is amazing. But obviously, in our beautiful game, there aren't any illustrations. So my job is to make sure that I draw the pictures with my words for the young reader so that the 9, 10, 11 year old reading it can can picture because not only because it's it's a book about sport and a book about sort of lively action, I've got to make sure they can see all that in their heads, but also because it's a historical book, I'm trying to make sure that contemporary kids who've got no idea what life in the First World War, they've got no idea what life without a mobile phone is, yet alone life without electricity, you know. So I'm trying to make sure in, in, in some of the houses I'm writing about, you know, there, there wasn't yet electric light, there's gas light in the streets and things. I'm trying to make sure that I draw those pictures with my words because I can't rely on an image. I have to entirely do that through my descriptive writing. And I'm trying to make sure that a kid reading it can slip back in time and lose themselves in, in a picture, a written picture of, of mm. life at the, at the turn of the last century. So you might be interested to know then. So I'm obviously uh, early on in the book, so there won't be too many spoilers uh, today. Um, there's the, the playing football in the, sort of the back streets and the sort of the open yeah. areas. But in my head, I, I, I can't get away from picturing that alleyway in Coronation Street. And that's that's all I can see. I know that there's yeah. obviously there's more people playing. It it's be, a bigger think, area. Yeah, it'd be very very similar to that. Certainly, that's kind of you know where people be where kids be kicking a ball about. But I think also you know any kind of flat area was 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 taken over. Same as same as now. You know, I mean, obviously now there are more there are more purpose built uh, football pitches and, and and local councils and communities make sure there are spaces and there are things like basketball courts where people will go and play football but it's the same I mean you know and there are less cars of course for people yeah. to worry about so you know any kind of flat space uh, outside a pub places like that you know that, that was big enough to, to get a game going because there weren't sort of municipal purpose-built places for for unofficial teams to go and play football which is part of the problem when we get to which I know we are going to get to part of the problem of of the FA ban is that is that there's there weren't then a great deal of places for people to to play football you know to find a flat space um you know to play to play football big enough to play a decent game with two sides is, is not an easy thing if there's no official area set aside to do that yeah so, so- just a sort of full disclosure for the listeners, I'm only on chapter 10 at the moment, or at least I think it's chapter 10. So there's not, not going to be any massive spoilers. Um, our main characters just become uh, a sister for the first time to add to a little brood of brothers. Um, so spoilers are going to be relatively minimal. But if you are dead against knowing anything, then uh, maybe put this episode on pause and come back to it once you've completed the book. Um but yeah, so you should be okay and, and safe to kind of listen through. We're only going to be uh, talking about sort of like the premises uh, premise more than anything else um so this probably a really good point to, sort of let, let, to go on to the book so uh, could you tell us about the premises of the book and um, in particular the book's main character yeah so the book is um 
centered around uh, a, a young girl who's sort of 11, 12, when we first meet her, called, called Polly Nab, who is, who is desperate to play football. And it's set um, during the First World War, the 1914-18 war, um, which, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, was a massive time for women's football because the game really, really exploded. Um, and Polly is is desperate to be part of that. And she gets a job working in a munitions factory um, in a Lancashire town, which, which is actually very closely based on um, Preston, Lancashire, which where the famous Dick Kerr ladies team came from. But I didn't want to actually write about the Dick Kerr team or famous players like Lily Parr and, and Alice Woods, although they really inspired Polly's character. But I wanted that freedom to uh, bring in different elements of, of things that might not have actually happened to the genuine characters. And because it's a story about about uh, sort of female friendship uh, in the shadow of war, you know, I wanted to have to have different different things and different relationships. So I pulled hugely on everything I could possibly find out about all those young players, incredible young players like Lily Parr, like Alice Woods, who, who were playing at this time. But then I fictionalised them all into Polly Nab and her teammates so that I could have them have their own their own personal adventures. And uh, because of that, I fictionalised um, a town as well, um, Kirsten, which which actually I so I call the the main town in my story is called Kirsten, which is is a blend of of Kerr from Dick Kerr's and the Stun from Preston. So I created this. Ah, I like it. I like Kirsten, it. I like it. Um, which uh, spoiler alert, maybe where uh, Polly ends up playing for for a big team, which is very closely based on on the Dick Kerr ladies. Um, but again, I didn't want to be so sort of hidebound by that particular history. Also, partly because I think Dick Kerr's was so phenomenally successful that in some ways it's not that dramatic because their um, the rivalries that they had were perhaps not as sort of hard fought. So if a bit one sided, a bit one sided, exactly. Which, as we know, is, isn't going to make a great a great drama. So actually, again, by fictionalising the team and the players, I was able to make sure that that some of the struggles were a bit more. Uh, pressing perhaps yeah but I've, I've been really enjoying the world that you've been building and the picture you're painting of life during the great war so for for any anyone else that's uh sort of 1914 to, to 1918 but um early on you talk about these games being played um uh, by sort of male factory workers um, and you describe that normally teams were made up of unmarried men against married men yeah. is, is that true yeah this was a this was a detail that i picked up actually in in a wonderful um account that i read of, of the dick Kerr ladies team and it was just one detail that really um stuck with me and uh the um the author who's barbara barbara jacobs um she said something really interesting that she talked about how um that's that's possibly one of the ways in which in which girls came to to play more because the unmarried teams began to get short of players as the young men uh went off to war and began to to fight and not come back or or not come back um able to play mainstream football um they uh they they came short of players and so and so Lily Parr in particular I know played on her brother's teams when they were short of um of unmarried unmarried men because obviously some of the, the the married teams often have much older men playing for them and so they they weren't as affected by the war but it was just one of those 
you know, this is one of the wonderful things about being an author and researching a historical period. You get a tiny detail like that and it allows you. I mean, I've built a whole sort of a seed. There's a whole chapter, really, just just based around that idea of of, of who gets to play and who doesn't in a, in a married and unmarried men's team and, 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 and who might be on the lookout for to to allow a girl to join in because because suddenly they want the players. It's, it was a really interesting yeah. insight, isn't it? How easy was it to find out this sort of information? Were you able to speak to any any historians or even former players? Yeah, no, I didn't actually manage to, partly because of lockdown. Uh, but I, there's lots of, um, I, you know, I was planning to go up and, and visit and spend a lot of time in Lancashire. And I, then I started to write this on the first day of the first lockdown was when I started to write this book. And so that obviously changed the way I approached it. But there's lots of fabulous material and some great books and some great studies, not only on football, uh, really brilliant sort of memoirs of um, the um, uh, Dick Kerr's ladies team. Um, in particular, there's um, a great book. And sorry, that's where I'm going to have to say no, because I can't remember we- the name of it. Sorry. Ah, here we go. Like, yeah. yeah. In particular, there's a great book, um, a, a League of Their Own by Gail Newsom, who um, she's really sort of... Um, researched all the players and the families and, and their background from the Dick Kerr's team. Um, and that was fabulous. So I was able to get hold of lots of information. Um, but also what I found actually was some great uh, memoirs about working in the munitions factories as well, because all the time I'm, I'm bringing together these two stories. And um, I thought that it would be much older girls and women who would be working in the munitions factory. So I was thinking that wouldn't really work for my story. And then I stumbled across lots of uh, proof that girls as young as 11 were working in the munitions factories, which is shocking. You think this isn't Victorian times, you know, this is this isn't yeah. even Edwardian times. This is, you know, this is 19, 1914, 1915, 1916. But, but 11 year old girls regularly worked in these incredibly dangerous factories where there were explosions, where people lost you know, limbs and fingers and, and all sorts, you know, and, and the girls were were very much part of that working community, which was something I hadn't realised I'd stumble across. So again, it's historical research is so wonderful. It's like unpicking threads and you start to pull on one thread and all sorts of amazing things will come out on the end of that string. It's it's wonderful. Yeah. And obviously we touched on Dick Kerr ladies who were based in Preston. Yes. Um, they're obviously the most famous side of that era. Yeah. But what do you think why, why do you think football is so special for the northwest of England? Um, yeah, I don't know. Women's football, I think, is, is especially special, perhaps because uh, perhaps because it's such a strong rugby region. Actually, strangely, so perhaps football was the less the less uh, aggressive of the two games. Perhaps there's a there's a thought there, but I also think it's a you know strong working class area tradition of women going out and working in factories before things like the war and before, you know, so many women came to work in munitions factories, which was one of the great spikes for the women's game. But I think women were already, you know, working class girls were tough, you know, and, and not expected yeah. to be to be dainty uh, and shilly shally about, you know. So I think it's it comes of a long tradition of, of, of girls getting on with it and girls being respected to look after themselves and be tough. But then I think the difference between the factories that they would have worked in before the war and the munitions factories is just actually that that in the munitions factories, suddenly um, two things really important. It becomes the majority women. So suddenly the women are on their own, you know, and and for many working class girls, it would be the first time that they're sharing their free time with 
uh, other other girls and women because prior to that lots of girls would have gone into service and worked at big houses as you know scullery maids whatever so you have your free time on your own and you don't get very much of it suddenly working in a munitions factory there are not so many men around you're working with other women and you're in a forecourt you're in a courtyard with joint free time like playtime at school you're so break time at school you're suddenly all together and you play mm. and so it's no surprise at football and there were a few men around and so football sort of started organically and, and and it started very often I think between competitions between the the boys and the girls the men and the women and it kind of grew out of that but crucially 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 it's the women are wearing trousers at the factory yeah and if you've ever tried girls to play football and tuck your skirt into your knickers it's not easy you know the minute you're actually wearing trousers makes it's a stupid thing and, and we're laughing but it makes a massive difference just to kick a ball not wearing a skirt is a huge move forward massive move forward you can't really kick a ball in a skirt it just it just can't be done yeah we just look at modern school now um you, uh, you've still got girls that while they have the option for for trousers they're still Seems this often seems to be in skirts. Well, it's, lots of schools won't let them wear trousers, and then you've got the whole skirt debate. But of course, we're talking, you know, turn of the turn of the last century. We're talking ankle length skirts. We're not talking above the knee, you know. And to, try, yeah. to try and kick and with petticoats, you know, to try and kick a ball if you've got something, you know, heavy, tweedy, thick, you know, the sort of uh, fabrics that again that working class girls would have had. They're thick. They're hard wearing. They're heavy. They're down to your ankles. You're not kicking a ball in that. It, so the minute they get put in trousers, which was munitions work, you know, changed that. They started to wear overalls because it was safer to be amongst these very dangerous machines. You know, and it should have happened before that in the, in the cotton mills and stuff, obviously, because they were also incredibly dangerous environments. But but with munitions work, trousers come in. Bingo. Football's ripe, ripe to be played. Do you think these wartime roles added um, or gave women confidence absolutely. and women, women absolutely completely completely definitely did because they were doing their bit and it was seen as doing their bit and they were respected and again although these were areas where women had worked in factories and cotton mills and stuff the pay was really good in munitions i mean it wasn't as good as the men the men did the same job as the women and the men got paid more it's a, There's another episode it's a traditional story we're, we're not unfamiliar with this but you know suddenly girls and women doing their bit being paid a really decent wage being respected for being part of the war effort you know and at the same time this is the same era you've got the suffragettes and the suffrage movement all going on simultaneously all this is coming together and class is changing and and, and you know and certainly post-war all that tradition of the way britain had been run was 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 thrown up in the air after the first world war and was never the same again and so incredibly exciting times for for girls for working class girls in particular to to re-envisage their lives in a different way yeah 100 percent. Yeah, definitely so in 1921 the fa obviously banned women from playing f- uh, football league grounds stating i quote the game of football is quite unsuitable for females and ought not to be encouraged what do you think were the main motivators for this ban? Yeah, I mean it's it, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And I'm sure your 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 listeners are, are, are familiar not only with the ban, but that no FA official was allowed to to officiate at at any women's match because obviously women were allowed to play football, but we couldn't we couldn't um, referee it obviously because we we weren't capable of that. So we still uh, you know it wasn't it wasn't allowed for a, for a female referee. So we had to rely um, 
on male refs and the FA said at the same time that no officials, no linesmen, no, you know. So the whole overnight a stranglehold was, was put on the women's game. And we were talking earlier about the availability of pitches and they were playing at these massive stadiums, you know, and, 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 and filling filling grounds and, and, you know, people desperate to get in to watch the women's game. And overnight they're, they're reduced to being back on a bit of waste ground behind the pub. Um, so you know, an extraordinary length that the FA went to. And I, I don't know how much, Stuart, you've, you've read up on this, but, you know, you get, uh, you know, Tottenham and Arsenal um, captains and coaches coming down, and, and to, to name two teams, I mean, lots, many teams did this, the male teams coming down and, and, and putting in their opinion and saying, oh, yes, women wouldn't be able to have babies if they played football. And, you know, that women's knees don't kick in the right direction. They got all these, the FA got all these Harley Street doctors to come and say that women's knees didn't move in the right way to play football. And so you're right. It has, you have to ask the question, why? What were they so afraid of? And to me, it definitely, it reeks of fear because why else? And I think it was because... You know, the women's game, as I say, started quite organically in the first world war. It hadn't really been played. There's a bit of, there's some history of some sort of Victorian women's football and sort of, you know, leading up. But but the first world war was this absolute explosion, as I say, because of the life in the factories all coming together. And all of a sudden you've got, you've got women's teams all over the country and you've got these big matches. Um, The 1920 Dick Kerr's Boxing Day match, 53 thousand spectators in the ground and others shut out unable to get in and they raised you know which was the other thing these matches were for charity and so they raised I think over three thousand pounds which is about 145,000 quid in, in today's money so that's a one, yeah. one one uh charity match and this had all been great and it was it was making money for the wounded troops and everyone thought this was great. There was a bit of a laugh. The girls were showing their knees and, and, and you know, at the beginning of the war. And then I think by the time you get to 1920, the, the men are coming home and the 1918-1919 um, season didn't happen because, as we know, the war famously ends on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. So that's November. So, yeah. um, you know, that season wasn't able to get going. So by the 1919-1920 season, the FA is really ready to be, you know, bringing the men's game in in a huge way. But they see a threat from the women's game. And what had started as a bit of a joke and a little thing on the side and a way to earn some money for the for the boys at the front is suddenly a serious opposition. And certainly in that first season, some of the the last season when the women are allowed to play post-war, that, that um, 1919-1920 season, uh, women's games frequently outsold men's games. And so I think there was, yeah. there was alarm, there was panic. There's almost seems to be a correlation between the empowerment of women to the uh, the emasculation of the men. Yeah. So it is fear, really, isn't it? And it seems such a shame to be and so short-sighted. And, and I think, again, you know, we've got to put it in, in context of social history. Again, this is a time when the suffragettes, are, people are afraid of the suffragettes. They're afraid of women wanting votes. They're afraid of women wanting more. The men, you know, within the factories, there was lots of stuff. The trade unions put in place all sorts of um, uh, levels to make sure that women couldn't work entirely alone in the factories so that post-war they would always be able to say, ah, oh, the women didn't really do our jobs. They did a version of our jobs, you know, because there was this fear that the men would go off to fight and that the women would claim ground in all sorts of places, whether that's in factory work, whether that's in sport, whether that's in politics. And, and I think the, the FA ban is an example of that. It's, it's you know... Uh, a male dominated i mean there were obviously no women on the on that fa committee in 1921 so a lot of men sat around in a room and again as we know sort of historically the fa was run by uh you know 
more sort of upper class men perhaps than the grassroots players and they're sitting around wanting to keep people and wanting to keep women in their in their place and I think it's absolutely founded on on jealousy and the huge amounts of money that the women were making uh, which was interesting as well because that had been for wounded soldiers during the war and then post-war that begins to be towards uh, striking workers and things who were who were who were striking for better pay and so that becomes much more political um, and and it felt the sort of socialist agendas which again is is making the establishment nervous but I think it was particularly that that these were women playing football filling stadiums and they didn't like it and I think they, that's why they closed it down and it's it's shocking and terrible and has done untold damage you know we're talking a hundred years certainly talking 50 years you know where women didn't get to play and imagine where the women's game would be if in those 50 years women had been allowed to continue to play at the level that they'd be playing you know we'd be talking about you know now we get and it's great that we celebrate and she's really had a spotlight shone on her someone like lily parr recently you know has had a fantastic spotlight shone on her but she would be one of, of 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 hundreds of women who would have played across that period of history but as it is, we're looking at her and going, wasn't she extraordinary? We shouldn't be doing that, really. It's a shame that we're having to do that. We should be saying she's one of, in the same way as we talk about the men's game, you know, we could pick we could pick 100 heroes from that 50-year period, but we've, we've only got, you know, one or two great female players to look at from those early, from those early years of their game because, because it was clamped down and, and shut off. Although women didn't stop playing. Of course they didn't stop playing. They kept playing and they, and they kept the spirit going and they kept the grassroots game going thank goodness because that's what leads to the to to us you know being able to be where we are today and, and, and in 1971 when the ban was finally finally lifted so 50 years you know almost to the day since since it was put in in 1921 finally it's lifted and, and, and the women's game was ready to you know there was still an ember an ember burning thank goodness but it's it's shocking yeah yeah definitely and um when you began the book, was it always a target of yours to release it this year, the, the 50th anniversary? Yeah, it, lifting seemed, the it seemed to make sense. I sort of stumbled across the Lily Parr story. And the minute I read it, I thought, this is a kid's book, you know, because obviously that's my, that's the angle I come at things from. I'm a kid's writer. I'm always looking for stories about young people doing amazing things. And, and Lily Parr was really young when she was playing professionally. You know, she she started playing at 12 and she was, you know, the scoring um, you know, hundreds of goals by the time she was 14, you know, very young player. And I thought this is, this is a story that kids are just going to love. It's, it's a girl following her heart, following her passion, pushing through. But then as the story got bigger and I thought about it being this fight against the FA and the fight against people, men trying to close down what, what young girls want to do. I, I thought very much that, uh, that this, this, um, centenary of the ban was a really important time partly as well because I didn't want it to be a negative thing because obviously it is about closing and 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 my story ends with with the FA winning almost and saying to to um to Polly my fictional character and her team saying saying the game's over but actually the book um spoiler alert but the book the book ends with with you know Polly saying you can take our ball but you can never stop our game you know we will keep on playing you can you can do what you like guys but you're actually not going to stop girls gathering together and playing football it will happen you you can try and you can try and stop us but you won't so I wanted to make sure there was that sense of energy and that sense of the ball being passed to this next generation. So it was it was it was definitely seemed timely and definitely because the story ends on a slightly sad note, 
for Polly and her teammates, but we know that there's a kind of glorious ending with, uh, you know, the huge passion for, for grassroots girls football now and, and fantastic, you know, international teams like the Lionesses, et cetera, et cetera. We know that, we know that the, that the history, you know, didn't, didn't go against us and that we managed to, to build this, this fantastic, um, joyous game that we now have. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, sadly, some of that misogyny is still around at the moment. And for me, a lot of that was brought in by this ban and that thought that women aren't as good. And it's quite simply wrong. When you aren't given the the, the tools at your disposal to flourish, then female footballers are obviously going to suffer. And we see a lot of this online with uh, it takes the BBC to promote one female event and then you get all the naysayers coming on. Do you think that there'll be a point in our lifetime where women's football will be widely considered on par with the men's game? Oh gosh, I hope so, don't you? I mean, I it just I think I think our kids generation, you know, contemporary kids are so much better at not being bothered who's a boy, who's a girl, who plays what, who does what. I just I hope, I really hope that this will be the last of this nonsense. I really do. But but you know, I think you can't expect the uh, women's game to be in the same state as the men's game because because it was under a stranglehold for 50 really crucial years. And so in 1971, it almost had to start again. You know, as I say, obviously that the flame was kept going at grassroots level, but it had to start again thinking about really sort of high profile. And I think it's only been in the last couple of decades, hasn't it, that women's football has been taken as seriously as it should be. And as you say, it's still not always taken as seriously as it should be. But then you look at something, you know, you look at equivalent sports, you look at something like women's tennis and men's tennis, there are still naysayers there. You know, I mean, it's just, but but I, I genuinely believe that this generation of kids are much better at, at taking it for granted. And certainly, I think the really heartening thing is that if you go now and walk past any primary school playground in this country now, you will see as many boys as girls, as many girls as boys, running up and down in their break time kicking a ball about. That will just be a fact, you know, and it's not seemed odd or strange for a girl to be playing. And I think to build on that will be the incredible thing. And as you've said, Stuart, you know, there are so many uh, girls, teams playing in leagues, playing across the country, you know, with young girls, 11, 12, 9, 10, 11 year old girls, you know, and they're seeing their heroes and they're seeing um, people. And, and there is more availability to watch games um, on television, all that sort of stuff. So it can only, it can only get better. But yeah, I think um, hopefully it's an end to the silliness, but I shouldn't think it's done and dusted, Stuart. I should think there will still be more, but hopefully we're, we're moving in the right direction all the time. Definitely. Wouldn't it be fantastic if a lot of them, a lot of these um, 10, 12, 13 year olds managed to stay into the game, into their adulthood? And I don't see why not now. I really don't see why not. You know, as long as as long as there are funding paths and and training opportunities um, made available for all young people, regardless of, you know, gender, skin tone, anything, you know, God, let's just enough. Let's just open it up to everyone. (laughs) Do you have any plans for your next book at all? Well, yeah, I'm I'm already sort of in the foothills of of my next book, which is is another historical one. I'm going back a little bit in time, but go back to the actually to almost a hundred years earlier. I go back to 1818, um, writing a book. Uh, so playing around with some ideas there, uh, not not about football, about something different. But it's amazing how um, you know a hundred years 
further back, I know even less and we know even less about how kind of society worked. And so I'm just at that early research stage, having fun, un- unpicking stuff and looking looking for uh, leads to follow in, in a sort of detective-like way. So that's that's really great. Yeah, it's always nice to see when someone enjoys their job. Oh, I and, love it. And I know. Nice to see your face, you're beaming about it. <laughs> well, you know, I'm lucky to, to get up every day and make stuff up. I mean, you know, and I don't, I don't have a boss. You know, what's what's to complain about? It's perfect. And I get to talk to kids and readers and, you know, it's, it's a joy, absolute joy. No, oh, definitely. Do you think that you could be tempted to go back and revisit this same subject matter, but maybe write something of a similar theme for even younger children? about this subject matter but actually I think I think the women's game is really I just as we've been talking actually I've been thinking about you know actually how it would be good to do the the highly illustrated picture books that we began talking about actually to do uh, a picture book for very young kids about about certainly about boys and girls playing together maybe would be just a really inspiring and positive thing to do maybe a you know team of uh, I don't know uh, a team of long-legged flamingos and storks and giraffes, and you know, all playing football together, boys and girls, all you know. Well, now, now you're now you're bringing back memories of bed knobs and broomsticks. Yes, exactly. But uh, so that that sort of idea, I think, would be great to do to do something about certainly showing positive images of of girls playing football at a very young age for a really fun early early picture book would be really fun. Definitely something I'll have a think about. Oh, fantastic! So, if any of our listeners don't already own the book how uh, how can they how can they get their hands on a copy well it's called our beautiful game by luke Hunsler. that's me it's available in all good bookshops online anywhere you want to search it um you know do um ideally go to your local bookshop and ask them they can always order it if they don't have it because it's great to support a local bookshop but if not the usual online um retailers will have copies of it um and it's great and hopefully by you know a, a, a young girl reading this or a young boy i mean because it's 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 actually it's it's for everyone because it covers the story of the boys off at war and the girls at home and all all sorts of things but hopefully particularly i suppose for a a girl who's keen on football reading this and getting a sense of the legacy of those players that have passed the ball on to her um would be i think my job was done that would be that would be marvelous i think we're almost selling your book short a little bit by talking about it being suitable for a younger age group. I think it, it's that's your starting point, but I think it's suitable for anyone and everyone yeah, of any age. I, I, know, certainly, well, I know, I know um, adults and teens have really enjoyed it. I think you wouldn't, you know, I, I'd say anyone over the age of, of, of nine would, would really enjoy it. It's sort of, you know, it, it's aimed at, the, at your nine, 10, 11 year old reader, but absolutely. I mean, there's, there's dark stuff in it. There's, there's stuff about life and life and football and friendship and feminism. And, you know, so absolutely it's, it's for anyone over nine years old, I would say. Um, and hopefully. Yeah. Well, within, within the first, I think, yeah, within the first hundred pages, we've got a, uh, a, a, a Childbirth and, and, uh, and, and there's death, the there's images of labour at that is, age. Yeah. This is the first world war in in in, in a cheek badge our community. People are dying. People are being born. People are fighting. People are you know uh, afraid. People are excited. It's it's an emotional it's an emotional moment in time. And hopefully, I've captured something of that uh, on and off the pitch in the book. 
Well, you've done a superb job so far. I'm really enjoying it, genuinely. And um, hopefully I managed to find time in between looking after little ones, coaching football teams, writing websites, working my day job to actually get it finished. But um, it, it is a great one. And I would um, encourage everyone to go out and have a look and, and read it. And um, I, I think I think you'll enjoy it. I know once I finish mine, I'm going to be, uh, as much as I want to keep the little copy, it, um, I think it needs to be shared. So I'm going to be sharing it with, uh, with my aunt, who's a, a Portsmouth Football Club season ticket holder, and um, someone who I'm going to be... Uh, bringing along to Portsmouth Women uh, when that will be starts in uh, in August. Fabulous. Brilliant. And uh, and then you can get it back when your own daughter's old enough to to have a read. You can can get your copy back and pass it on. (laughs) Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, thank you again for taking the time. Um, I really appreciate it. And um, I look forward to uh, seeing the TV show. Uh, to the movie exactly Hollywood here we go yeah. <laughs> thanks Stuart that was lovely thank you so much for uh, taking the time and so for anyone that wants to follow your work um, how, where can they find you online uh, well you could I've, I've got a website which is if, if you if you google Lou Kunzler which is k-u-e-n-z-l-e-r so it's l-o-u-k-u-e-n-z-l-e-r you can find me um, I'm on twitter at Lou Kunzler. Um, if you go onto the Faber website, they'll have information about me as they publish the book. Um, but basically, a great, great way to start off: Google Lou Kunzler or follow me at Lou Kunzler on Twitter. Excellent. Well, thanks again. You take care, and um, yes. yeah, hopefully we'll get a little bit of break in this this hot weather. <laughs> Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.